Hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. I'm joined by Chris from the Outside Right. Thanks very much for coming on, Chris. How are you doing? All right. How are you? Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, I'm all good. I'm all good. So for, for those that are listening or watching that don't know uh, who Chris Lee is or what the Outside Right is, how would how would you describe it for uh, for those that want to know? Um, I guess it was it started as a side project, really. So I was traveling a lot with work. And um, I realized when I was going to like Amsterdam or Brussels, I'd taken a game at like, you know, IX or um, on the left or one of those sort of places. And you just, um, it, it seems, you know, it's a great opportunity to get to know a country and its culture and things like that. And then, so I just started blogging about it in 2016. Um, and that led to a podcast as well. And um, since has led to books which are not well, they're not ground hopping related, but they are sort of uh, football culture and history. Because my degree was uh, my dissertation was on Spanish regional identity as expressed through football as it's back in the late nineties, um, without giving away my age. But uh, and that was um, a case study, as you can imagine, of Madrid Barca, um, and so that kind of just turn me on to the idea of sport and politics and there wasn't much about it in those days i think simon cooper's football against the enemy had only just come out maybe late 90s um there's a lot about it now um but it's great it's getting sort of a lot of academic sort of um uh review so that kind of led to the you know to the second book which is fine which which we're going to talk about i'm sure that's a it's a great place to talk to start just because uh one of my, my favorite podcasts or topics that you cover is you know uh spain and football around the, the spanish civil war as well and uh, you know, I think the thing that makes your podcast oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and your blog stand out is people often talk about football, they talk about the 11 players on the pitch, but you delve very deeply into the, the history and the origins of football clubs and yeah. politics that motivates their fans. You know, I, I live in the west of Scotland, which is a, a cauldron in itself, and to, to see the comparisons to where we are, to other places and how different we are, I think... Uh, Supporting a provincial mm. club, for example, like Motherwell, people often say, you know, politics and football doesn't match, you know, we shouldn't put them together. But when you look abroad, that's almost a, a recurring theme in, in many, many places, and Spain's probably a, a great one to touch on. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, because my first book, Origin Stories, which is about how the game got started, in a country-by-country guide, rough chronological order, um, uh, we exp- explore that sort of very topic in terms of when does football become political, and obviously in England and Scotland it was more sociological than political, I suppose. Uh, it's when it hits Ireland in the kind of late 1870s, early 1880s, it becomes part of the sort of national awakening and a, a lot of um, kind of, I guess, protectionism around Gaelic um, games, you know, like, like um, um, Gaelic football and, and hurling against sort of British imports such as football, rugby, um, cricket, hockey, things like that. So it's kind of, that's when I guess it becomes like first football becomes political. And it's part of the National Awakening is covering that book in Uruguay, Egypt, India, Turkey, you know, so it's, it's a, and part of the national identity of Argentina, for example, it's like, it, it's a, it's a big thing to a lot of places. We, we may not, I mean, um, in England, certainly not, I guess in West of Scotland, you're more tuned into um, the politics out there. Uh, although that is kind of, I guess, limited to a couple of derbies really um but um wider than that it doesn't really really exist um where especially it's where my book starts second book defiant what made you 
take that step then because you know that you, you touched on before you were just traveling around you were you were over in the netherlands and, and you'd go and watch ajax for example mm. when did you think you know i'm going to start documenting this because i suppose at first class you were doing this for yourself and then before you know it there's a a big audience there that are thinking we we like to ground up as well we like to travel to different countries there's a community so to speak mm. uh, and i'd imagine the people well i mean your podcast and get in yeah. touch have, have been to various countries and, and take advice to things that you've said as well you know yeah, I think uh, there is a big community of this, and there were a few people blogging and sharing things on Facebook as before. Um, but it's yeah, I mean, all of us have probably gone to games abroad just out of interest and haven't really made a habit of it. But then I think there's two push and pull factors really. Um, where I live, if I go to a match, where I, I don't go to Premier League typically but if i did it would cost maybe 50 70 pounds whatever um difficult to get a ticket uh the atmosphere isn't super amazing it's fair it's you know depends where you go um quality on the pitch obviously is like you know second maybe only to spain perhaps um but at the same time it's not it's not um you know i i, I don't find the experience that different i'm used to it you know what i mean so if you want to go for something different where people look for more authentic experience i go down low in the leagues and there's some really good cultures emerging um in, in the uk i think in the sort of lower league level but they're inspired often by europe you know in terms of the ultra scene maybe in 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 in, in europe so we get <laughs> i don't know if it's a health and safety thing or, or just a cultural thing or what but there's way more atmosphere in and as a choreography in italy and germany for example my favorite two places to go and watch a game um because it's so accessible it's cheap and uh, there's always tickets available um and uh yeah there's always something on especially at a night match you know brescia did a uh, brescia ultra is a temporary standard incredible tifo um you know when we went there a few years ago you know it's just like it's just you can't beat it really i don't think just to, to touch on, you mentioned Italy there and, you know, your book for anyone that's listening comes out in, in October. So when this mm-hmm. podcast comes out, I'd imagine it will be released uh, 10th of October. Uh, it's called The Defiant and it's a history of football against fascism. Uh, Chapter mm-hmm. 100 years of football as a platform to oppose fascism and dictatorship in the far right. I think that's probably a really interesting topic anytime, but at the moment, especially in Italy, where, you know, the, the new prime minister coming in, it probably couldn't have come out at a better time for you. I know, yeah, uh, that was incredible because I was there um, a couple of weeks ago before the time we were recording in Naples, and it was, um, and they were talking about it then. It was, you know, they covered the Queen was top billing for th- for three days, um, but the, and the, but the election was still being covered, and um, that was that was really fascinating to see how you know it involved. But didn't it didn't really surprise me at all, if, um, if having re- read this book. And known, you know, the culture of a lot of ultras, and have to be sort of taking nuanced approach here when we talk about. I'm sure a lot of people, your listeners, will think associate certain clubs with certain political persuasions. We've got to remember that most people, most fans, and I make this point right up front in the book, just go to watch a match. <laughs> they're not like thinking about the politics of it. It's just their local team; they want to see them do well. Um, but yes, there are hardcore ultra within some cover who will. In the stands at the end of the goals, who who will have persuasion, and even with it a curva, you can have different political persuasions. So we have to be careful not to stereotype any particular clubs. But yeah, in Italy, it does tend to be a bit of a right leaning. I shared on Twitter actually the 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 um the sort of the way people you know the political sort of landscape of Italy that as as per the election as it came out this week, and um 
it was interesting to see who voted for sort of right-leaning parties and who voted for more left-leaning. Uh, and left is very much around the central belt in kind of um, Tuscany. And that's really interesting because that backs up one of the sort of big sections of my first chapter on Italy, which is about why is Tuscany a um, quite liberal, left-leaning sort of environment? Uh, and you see a place like Livorno, which is a port city, uh, was the birthplace of the... Um, Italian Communist Party in, in the early 20s. Um, and their ultra is quite famously very, very left wing, um, you know, in, in the Italian context uh, or even global context. So it's um that was fascinating to see actually. That sort of I was like that kind of vindicates the, the chapter on Tuscany that I write. So or chapter on Italy, I should say. Yeah, it's interesting you mention that. We've got some friends over in Bologna that we visit quite regularly and, and go to the carval over there and Obviously, quite famously as well, left wing, and it seems like that area of, of Italy, you know, Emilia Romagna and, and Tuscany, mm. it's like a red wall uh, across the map, and the rest of it has went pretty blue. What, what yeah, well, Bologna is an interesting case in itself because it linked to Mussolini in, in terms of the the, the guy that built the yeah. stadium. Fascinating stadium, one of, the, I mean, one of the great stadiums. I mean, you can't get away from Mussolini's legacy in Italian football anyway. Um, there's, you know, at least three clubs in Serie A were formed deliberately as to, to create one city club you know to be really competitive in the new Serie A so that was Napoli um RS Roma which Lazio resisted the move to join RS Roma um which is good in a way because it gives us the you know one of the world's fieriest derbies but then uh and Fiorentina as well which is which my club over there um and you got these it, but Bologna is an interesting case because like I said that they, they do have that sort of left um leaning element but in my book I talk about uh, I can't remember who it was it's a Bolton or Burnley or some northern team were touring just before the push in uh, the March on Rome in October, October 20, 1922 which is why you know quite serendipitous I was working on this book and it came out at the same sort of time I sort of looked at this as the sort of deadline I wanted to get it out as a centenary of that but um, but they were in when when Bologna fell to, to fascists in 1922 and it's quite interesting their match got cancelled but at the same time when Mussolini fell in 1943 Bologna went into the stadium, which is now called the Renata dell'Ara, which is one of the great stadiums of Europe. Um, and they ripped down his statue, but he's on horseback in this. Um, and they tore down his statue, but they could only get his upper body off. So <laughs> his horse and his and his legs were stuck there for like four years before they dismantled the whole rest of it. But the rest of Mussolini was pulled off by Bologna fans. So there we are. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. What, what when you were coming about this book, what what countries? Did you consider that maybe didn't make the cut, Chris? Because I, I know that chapter two is about Iberia. Um, mm. Chapter three is obviously about you know Central and Western Europe. Was there was there any areas that you wanted to touch on that didn't quite make the cut there? Um, well, it's probably just just for context for your listeners. Um, the chapter running is basically an introduction, uh, as in like what what do we mean by like fascism and far right, um, and where why is football so political? Um, more than maybe other sports you think about the what's politically um child all sports could be but it depends on their popularity so cricket for example between india and pakistan that's highly political because it means matters a lot to both countries people in both countries um the olympics is always political in many ways or can be depending where it is i look at moscow 80 1980 berlin 1936 these but that's a sort of massive event of multi-sports so soccer on its own is quite an interesting test case uh, at a local level, a national, national, international level. So cover that first. Italy, chapter one. Iberia, chapter two. So that's Spain and Portugal. So Franco Salazar in particular, and then modern progressive movements. Um, 
like Roy Albertano, who some of your teams, uh, some of your listeners be familiar with that team. Um, ooh, what's next? Oh, yes, yeah, Central and Western Europe. So this is mostly World War II, as a Nazi-occupied area. So obviously a massive emphasis on Germany there, resistance in France and ne- Netherlands, Czech Republic, Hungary, or Czechoslovakia as it was. Um, just, and, just, just as you touched on Germany there, what I'd, I'd imagine mm. you really covered this in the book and, and you have done in previous podcasts, but what I think quite interesting about Germany is uh, a lot of the, the countries that you've mentioned, you know, like the Italy's and, and elsewhere, it tends to be that Carvers are made up of, you know, right-wing groups or they've been infiltrated by right-wing groups and uh, political parties almost see that as a breeding ground for the far right if they can get mm-hmm. in But a lot of the ultra groups in Germany tend to be very left-wing, even, even in cities where potentially their governments are, are centre-right. I'll take care of um, Munich for the, the example there, you know. Yeah, I mean, Germany's an interesting case because obviously it's been reunified and the experience in the West is very different from the, in the post-unification era, it's very different from the East, the former GDR. Um, so you, what you, you mentioned there may be, is probably accurate for um, much of what was Western Germany, but in former East Germany actually you're seeing uh, a lot of far-right activity um, which I go into so I do yeah in in that German chapter I do cover progressive clubs I've got a great interview with Tennis Borussia which some of your team uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with Um, and then Babelsberg's another great example they've and Kimi Leipzig but they've all had kind of clashes with uh, fans of other clubs but all the clubs I should say this you're just talking about like fan groups all the clubs themselves um, in Germany are very obviously aware of their own history. They are educated about it, uh, which every country in Europe um, should probably learn from, to be honest, in the way they educate their people about their past. But they, and they will have like, pro, you know, programs to sort of, um, uh, anti, you know, to go against discrimination and educate um, people, et cetera, and, and don't, uh, no tolerance policies, et cetera. So the clubs themselves are doing the right thing. But like you said, there, there was, there's an element still potentially particularly in former east germany so um but anyway just on the chapters to wrap that up so after that is eastern europe which you know is quite quite a difficult one to write um uh, so polish resistance really really interesting uh back in world war ii but then we look at the progressives uh, the the sort of maybe lack of progressive scene in eastern europe uh really good stories from croatia and Heidelberg split um during world war ii and uh greek resistance partisans um and then latin america obviously has a chapter and that's the dictatorships in brazil argentina chile and uruguay and then um i finished with tapped on britain which is kind of more just a bit about world war ii footballers in world war ii and then also um more about the progressive clubs that you know so got interviews with Flan, uh, clapton whitehawk dulwich hamlet and um eastbourne town as peer pressure ultra so it's a yeah. non-league scene which is quite interesting but um, it's funny you mentioned yeah. that. You said earlier, you know, the, the lower leagues in, in Britain tends to be where these these groups are popping up. And you've done a great podcast and, and traveling around Wales and watching football there. Uh, oh, yeah. But but also, you know, the, it's it's interesting that you finish up with these these groups as well uh, uh, around around Britain because it it seems to me that you know the likes of your your White Hawks or your Dulwich Hamlets, etc. From the mm. outside looking in, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Jessica, this this could be me being very ignorant towards it. I almost feel like it's it's this is this is harsh, right? It, it's almost like student groups that have popped up in these areas that are taking over the football clubs rather than the football fans are it's growing from a historical 
you know, your, your granddad took you or your dad took you. And that, that could be very unfair. Yeah. I know I, I, I know what you mean. I mean, I opened the chapter, I think it was the Guardian did a piece called like Hipster Club or something to Dulwich Hamlet, which back in 2012, I mean, I used to live near Dulwich Hamlet, so I've been there quite a few times. Um, but to be honest, I mean... Uh, that's, that's, that's not got... to knock it, Chris, because you look at this and you think, you know, they're, they're creating an atmosphere, you know, they're building uh, positive movements around their football yep. club, but it was just, it's just interesting to see the dynamics there. Um, well, there, there's a number of things. One, they say probably, you know, bringing lots more fans and money into the club. Yeah. They're doing a lot of good work, a lot of them in, in their local community, which probably wasn't being done before. Um, and I know what you mean, yes, but it's it's where people, a place where people can, you know, these, these are good people. These are well-intentioned people. So it's like, you know, and the very interesting, the Clapton experience, when they Clapton put their, um, changed their, did their, created a shirt, which was in the, um, to commemorate the end of the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. Like the 80th anniversary of it. So it was the red, so start again. Yes, red, yellow, and purple of the Second Spanish Republic, and on their shirt with the trident of the um, International Brigades. And it's like, well, who, who, when did you ever see sort of that, you know, on a shirt before? And it's really interesting. And so it's almost like a history lesson for whomever is interested in that shirt. Sold worldwide, really did really good. Oh, you know, yeah. So, so, um, so many people in Glasgow wearing that as well, and you're thinking, yeah. people would never. Heard but I mean, like with any of these things, it's almost like people. I mean, I, I make the point in this: if you go look back at the sort of the flagship fan uh flagship club in this um, respect was probably fc st Pauli for many years decades almost like i guess it really took off it started in the 80s um really took off in the 90s i guess an international kind of cognizance and it was um i think if you if you see someone in the street wearing st Pauli shirt i think it's more or less them telling you something about them and their how they identify ideologically and you know they'll probably follow the, the prospects of Rio Vallecano, Livorno, all those sort of other clubs, and, and they'll find a space at like Dollar Chapman and places like that. Absolutely. Just to, to jump on here, the final chapter of the book as well was, was chapter seven, and that was a, a look at progressive activist football clubs as well, wasn't it? Not limited yeah. geographies. So one of, the, one of the clubs that I find very interesting is Bohemians over in Dublin. Uh, somewhat mm. myself, you know, a Motherwell fan there, they're a fan of the club, and similar to uh, Clapton as well, they, they've done a lot around uh, their football strips. So this season, they've got the uh, Bob Marley strip that seems to be selling mm. up way before that. They had the, you know, the shirt with Refugees Welcome on it as well. What was your findings for, for them? Without really um, book, of course. Yeah, I mean, Bohemians uh, feature, there is only like one paragraph on them at the end, because just to, <laughs> I just realised I didn't quite answer your question who I left out, but in the conclusion, I talk about other clubs from around the world, including Bohemians and like Portland Timbers and, and, and um, was it Standard Liège and Bellaringa? And uh, so there's there's other clubs in there, but yeah, Bohemians they seem to, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because they're one of the oldest clubs in Dublin, right? I mean, they're very long established, but they have had this recent culture, which is almost like I said, it's more almost in that sort of St. Pauli vein, really, you know, yeah. sort of it's very, kind of reminds me a lot of it in, in, in many ways, but um, I, I guess there's obviously, um, space for that in Dublin and, and uh, it appeals to people because obviously they sell out all the time so was there anywhere you went and, and you thought you know I want to interview this person and they said no or how did you go about the process of identifying who you wanted to speak to um do you know what it's, it's this was all desk based because it was written during 
lockdown. <laughs> this is my lockdown project. Just as to hear that, I mean, so many, don't get me wrong, lockdown brought so many tragedies for many and, and it's own challenges, yeah. but it's, it's good to hear, you know, of people doing well and, and coming out. Well, of, yeah, uh, I mean, luckily my day job is is in digital marketing anyway, so, so I've been working remotely for, you know, more than a decade, so that was, it, it wasn't a massive culture shift for me to do that, so kept kept the sort of day job going, but um, just on the side, yeah, the the research basically was pretty much like British newspaper archives, just doing some word search and seeing what's going on in the world. Uh, a lot of reading around those chapters. And so one, I mean, they grow organically when you start writing a book. Um, you know, my first book origin stories took four years and it was sort of three and a half and it <laughs> kind of grew out of control. And so I'll start doing this, this is, oh, 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 maybe I should cover that country. And then it takes a whole, lot, you know, it's going to take weeks to research that one country. But I mean, um, there's a lot of it depends where you go really because there's a lot written already on a lot of different topics um, I'd already interviewed some guests on my podcast I've got like 200 plus podcasts going back so I just looked back once I'd had this idea I looked back see what I had already in material and just sort of asked if they were happy with me using it um, you know or you know and getting some quotes signed off approved and stuff and so um, yeah I mean I learned a lot uh, as I went you know when there are people who study like the far right in his new full time and as a job so like you know that's quite that's quite interesting um and uh yeah so i got a lot of uh a lot of interest from that but it's like you know this like you said in terms of timing it was that i mean this isn't like a political statement on my own part at all i'm just a historian or like you know part-time amateur who's <laughs> interested in, interested in politics and sport so i'm not making any statements but i just thought this was quite interesting topic to to cover given given how, like you said the way things are right now you know yeah i mean you couldn't have released this book at a better time although in my opinion you know it couldn't be a worse time for it really but uh you know it, it certainly seems that you, you've brought this out at a great time when there is so much polarization in the world uh, mm. and, and you really from your podcast you've you really touched on that and i think what you do quite well is you there's doesn't seem to be a bias narrative to any of it you know you you, you tell the stories and and let people make their own conclusions and i would imagine that the, the book is very similar as well yeah i mean i don't i mean i i just sort of um, um i mean the, the crux of when you say there are like there there was a worse time the worst time was the 1930s and 40s but the yeah. um and and if you're in latin america 70s and 80s um or 60s depending but the in terms of um yeah i mean I mean, it's all just facts. It's all curated. It's everything's got like, um, you know, um, footnotes as to where you can read more about that. It's a properly like academic source, <laughs> like you know, books. Everything's sourced. If anyone wants to go and read more about a topic, they can they can do that. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's the crux of it does happen. Like I said, in in that sort of like thirties, forties, if it's in Europe, uh, a bit less so. You know, the the the, the interesting thing about Iberia is those those dictatorships didn't get involved in World War II they were neutral Franco and Salazar in Spain and Portugal and they kept going till the mid-70s um you know so without giving my age of weight um Franco died not long before I was born so it's like you know this is almost living memory for you know me as the writer in, in many ways and, and Spain trade I mean I went to university in Spain in the 90s so 20 something years after that sort of transition they never quite they didn't deal with it in the same way that um like south africa did with truth and reconciliation and you see this still being played out there's a lot of polarization in spain right now um 
unlike Italy, that it is sometimes played out on the pitch, although not necessarily kind of, well, I say, say there's some left and right element, but I think the Madrid bar is such a hegemony over there. Um, and I was saying this on another podcast recently, actually, it's like, if you look at Spain, it's almost like Madrid is the centre, the club of the centre. Catalonia can be, I mean, Barcelona is still seen as, the, you know, the Catalan kind of club. And I guess if you're a fan of another team, such as, uh, you know, Leganes in, in Madrid or like, you know, on the Real Sociedad or Gijón or one of those sort of other clubs, you know your team isn't going to win league. So you'll probably have a, a preference out of Madrid-Barca who you win. And that might reflect, um, for some people, might reflect their politics in terms of how they feel about the Spanish nation, you know. I suppose this is a, a bit, maybe put you on the spot here, Chris, but from, from your findings and, and the people that you spoke to, is, is there any clubs that do this particularly well in terms of playing on their, their political stance or knowing where they're positioned in their community uh, to, to, um, make that, to make positive change? Yeah, I think you have to be differentiate between clubs and the fans. Right? Yeah, I, I mean um, mostly clubs because I, I know it's so easy to be pushed from the terraces. Yeah. As you touched on earlier, you know, people have this view of what they, they think football clubs are like, but often that's the mm-hmm. fans. But is there any clubs, I, I think, when I think of Barcelona, I almost feel like they wear that Catalan badge with pride, you know, and, and that comes from the directors and, and those running the football club. But I don't know if there's anyone else around the world that you've maybe found that are... Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, well, in terms of just identity, if I take this sort of left-right element out of it, um, yes, Barcelona obviously been acutely aware of that, but obviously they're now, I think now compared to when I was there and they didn't have a shirt sponsor, I think now they're more of a commercial rivalry with Madrid than anything else, they're very international, where before it was very in, in, inside Spain. Um, um, Athletic Club in Bilbao, very obviously, as you know, they have since 1912 had that um, Cantera policy. We have to have Basque groups to play. Um uh, I think St. Pauli aware have done, done a very good job as well. They've got to be really careful about how they sort of market themselves. They don't want to sort of look like they're selling out or anything like that. But obviously, you know, there's lots of merchandise there. I think they, they um, Tennis Borussia in Berlin are very mindful of, of their sort of identity. I know that uh, also, I think who else? Rio is different because Rio have a conflict with their owners at the moment at the time. Um, so the fans, yes, very sort of, very left. Um, who else is there now? Uh, I mean, there's quite a few if you go around the world, but those are the ones that sort of stood out. So, oh, Corinthians, Corinthians democracy, yeah, in, in Corinthians in Brazil. Um, some of you, uh, your listeners will be familiar with Corinthians democracy, the, the, the Socrates and uh, Walter Casagrande back in the 80s, sort of um, when Brazil was under dictatorship. Uh, sort of tail end of the dictatorship, it ended in the mid 80s, but still in the early 80s, it was still quite prominent. People hadn't voted for a dec- uh, generation, right? So 20 odd years. And they just encouraged everyone to go out and vote, um, something they'd never done before. They were obviously worried about any repercussions. Um, but no, they're just having the confidence of wearing it on a shirt and getting out talking, spreading the word on the football pitch in Sao Paulo did the trick, got people out voting. And they, um, it kind of, you know, it could, could argue it helped, you know, give the people confidence and bring it, bring down the sort of you know, dictatorship, so to speak. But even recent years, uh, Corinthians fans have kind of resurrected that sort of vibe uh, on the street, protesting and stuff. So, I find it fascinating that a, a club would do such a thing, but I think that's really important because they probably know their fans and their membership more than more than others. You know, and mm. uh, I, I guess that that breeds from the community that there are, maybe where they're located in a city or a country as well. And it's fascinating that the, the bit that you touched on there was uh, St. Pauli. Coming over commercialized as well, and 
you know, that, that is a very, very line to tread, isn't it? Because they, they can't control who buys the merchandise or how many T-shirts they sell to a certain extent. But I think what they've done in recent years, which kind of shocked me, is try to do the, you know, the American tours, pre-season, etc. And I just think, mm, I'm, I'm not too sure about that. It doesn't, doesn't sit well with me if that's the, the ethos of their club. But maybe I'll be harsh. Um, sorry, I missed that. Which club was that? Sorry, it's San Paolo. Oh, San Paolo. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose they. Um, I don't know. Just about like straddling a fine line, really, isn't it? Um, it's it's really interesting because when a club goes up, I mean, one example is Union Berlin, um, which is not you know not politically. I'm just talking in terms of culture. It's a really fun place to be. <laughs> I, mean, I went when I went in the second Bundesliga, and it's it's great. And now it's very difficult to get in. I think they only had like. They're expanding it, I think, but there's only 22,000 capacity in those days. Um, but when you've got a great little ethos, a really great club, and a bit of a sort of cult following in its own right, but when they get promoted, then how do they keep that authenticity? Yeah. Um, and now they're like in Europe, uh, you know, champ, uh, not Champions League, Europa League, aren't they? And um, so how do they keep that authenticity while being a successful commercial entity? So it's, it's a challenge for those sort of clubs, really. Absolutely. What's the next steps? Thanks. This is your, your second book, and it's just about. Yeah. Well, it's just came out. What, what what do you do next? Is there going to be a third? Is there? Uh, yeah, I'm taking a break. I mean, taking a break from all this because um, uh, this is just a hobby for me. The <laughs> same with the podcasting. So I'm actually giving that a, a rest as well after this next series. Um, there is. I've got a concept for a third book, and I'm going to start looking into it properly next year. Um, but they are extremely time consuming. Like I said, this was fine because it's during lockdown. Um, but when you've got other things on, <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of an effort. So I do have a concept for the third book, and it's going to be a bit of politics and ground hopping mixed. So a bit more personal, less desk based, more out in the field. Sure. But I won't I won't be saying anything about that um, for a, about for a while. That's fine. Where can people find and find and if they want to want to go out and buy that, where can they find that? Um, well, it's out on Pitch Publishing. It should be, should be um, in all the sort of usual places. It's out on October tenth, um, and it's uh, you can follow me online at Outside Right. That's W R I T E, play on words, and that's on Instagram, Facebook, and most active probably on Twitter. OutsideRight.co.uk for all the sort of you know the blogs and the podcasts and everything else. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Chris. Thanks to everyone who's watched or listened to this podcast. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, please go back and check out some old episodes. And please go out and check out Chris's book. Make sure that you get that and follow Outside Right on Twitter as well. Cheers, Chris. Thank you. Thank you.